Hello, I'm John Horning, and this is Shaking Scripture's Leaves, a podcast where we think through Scripture, one passage, one topic at a time, until we have shaken all of its leaves. This time, we're actually back on Ecclesiastes. Uh, we've already done two messages in this series talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 1, which Solomon initiates his argument, and he starts talking about the vanity of life, the brevity of life, and the way that that renders life worthless, and as well as the beginning portion of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where Solomon had gone through his own experience of pursuing pleasure and pursuing enjoyment and the way that at the end of his life, it didn't solve the problem. It did not leave him feeling satisfied. It did not leave him in a position where he could honestly say, I lived my life to the fullest. Despite the fact that the things that Solomon pursued are just the things that we think will make it so that when we are at the end of our lives, we can say, I lived my life to the fullest. Solomon had pleasure. Solomon was able to make accomplishments. Solomon enjoyed his work. Solomon enjoyed his leisure. Solomon was a man who had all of the things that we think we want, and he even changed his world around him to make for himself a little earthly paradise, a slice of the Garden of Eden just for Solomon. And at the end of his life, he says it was not the way to live. And now, what we're going to be doing this week is we're going to pick up another solution that people have to that problem. I still remember, I was in a college class, I was in a history class, and the professor, he talked to us about how true immortality is to be remembered. To have my names in the history book, that's immortality, he said to us that day. And that's going to actually be the next issue that Solomon chooses to address. In this, uh, in this section, we are going to be talking about work. And specifically, we are going to be talking about the legacy that a person is able to build up for himself through productive effort. And the fact that when we realize that I might not be able to stay here forever, and I might not be able to enjoy my life forever but I can leave something after me and I can leave something and I can leave a mark and I can make an impact that even if people don't necessarily remember my name, they can still be influenced and impacted by something that I created. I can live on through the things I accomplish, through the things I leave behind. And that is the next thing that Solomon addresses in this upcoming section how about a legacy? If I might not be able to enjoy all of the things that I do and have that last forever because death will cut it short, I can leave a legacy that outlives me. And maybe that's the answer that I've been looking for. And that's what Solomon addresses. So we're going to be talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 26, and I'm going to start reading. And so in verse 12, he says, and I turned to consider wisdom and madness and foolishness, because what will the men who come after the king do with what is already there? In other words, when Solomon is gone, or when you and I are gone, what will the people who come after us 
do with what we left them? What will the king's successor do when the king leaves? What will your successor do when you leave your post at your company or your church? What is going to happen with the nation that perhaps we have contributed to building up, or at least hopefully we contribute to building up? What will our kids do with what we leave behind for them? What will our successor do with the legacy we leave in their hands? That is the question that Solomon is now addressing. Verse 13 And I saw that the prophet of wisdom over foolishness is like the prophet of light over darkness. The wise has his eyes in his head, but the fool is walking in darkness. But still, I know that one fate will come to all of them. And so the thing that we see here is that there is a genuine advantage to wisdom. It makes life better because you know how to navigate life. It's like being on a ship and having clear skies and being able to clearly see where land is and being able to navigate in in relation to that as opposed to being in a cloudy situation where you can't see the stars, you can't see the sun, you don't know where you are, and so you can't navigate. Solomon compares it to a blind man or a man who has eyes. That if you can see where you're going, it allows you to walk around without walking into obstructions and falling over them, without accidentally missing things that end up costing you later. But with wisdom, you are able to navigate life. Wisdom is skillful living. In Proverbs chapter 1, when Solomon is personifying wisdom, one of the things that wisdom says is, for the turning away of the simple will kill them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me, that is wisdom, shall dwell securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. And just the fact that if you are a wise person and you understand how to navigate the world around you, then you will be able to avoid the unnecessary suffering that some people so eagerly bring upon themselves. And you will instead be able to avoid those pitfalls and even capture opportunities that come your way because you have the eye to recognize them. And so wisdom does make your life genuinely better, both by avoiding unnecessary suffering and also by capitalizing on available benefit. But notice the thing that Solomon says at the end of those two verses, at the end of verse 14, he says, but still I know that one fate will come to all of them. That whether you are wise or whether you are a fool, you end up dead regardless. It's like that old saying that the king and the pawn are put back away into the same box. And so Solomon says, I started to think about the person that comes next because I realized that while wisdom makes me labor more effectively, What I produce will be left behind. And so in verse 15, he says, So I said to my heart, like the fate of the fool, I also will have this fate. So why have I been so excessively wise? And I said to my heart, even this is vapor. And so one of the words that I kind of want to focus in on there is the word excessively. He didn't just say I was very wise. He didn't just say I was abundantly wise. He says I was excessively wise. I was wise 
with leftover. I was wise with excess. I was wise more than I needed to be. And consider this, Solomon is thinking about the way that his wisdom is able to give him pleasure and enjoyment, but he also notes that if he's leaving stuff behind, it means that his wisdom produced more than he was able to enjoy. And so he was excessively wise because he produced all of this stuff for himself to enjoy, but he produced more than he was able to enjoy. And so he spent more time being wise and laboring for his pleasure than he needed to. And he ended up producing more than he could actually take in himself. You might think of it as him saying, my money didn't need to last longer than until my deathbed. Why did I spend more time working to produce what I myself cannot enjoy? And in verse 16, For there will be no memory of the wise, just like the foolish in the future. In the days which have already passed, everything has been forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. And so, we're not just dealing with the legacy that is left by the objects that you leave behind, but Solomon thinks about his name. The fact that there will be people who forget him. And I mean, it's an interesting thing that Solomon is the one talking about this, considering there's there's a lot of kings I don't remember the name of, but I do remember the name of Solomon. But when it comes right down to it, there's a lot of people who don't remember Solomon. And eventually, people will forget Solomon. Like Solomon, in his case, has been immortalized in the Bible, but there is going to come a day when there is no one left in this earth who still remembers Solomon, because this earth will eventually be destroyed. Ultimately, no matter how great your memory is, this world is going to come down. And I mean, once we're in heaven, we're still going to remember Solomon, but we aren't considering that. Remember, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, especially verse 3, Solomon does note that he's not considering the afterlife. We're considering this life under the sun. And no matter who you are, you're going to be forgotten, the vast majority of people. And in the rare instance where someone is remembered for a longer period of time, there still comes a time when they will be forgotten. There still comes a time where no artifact that they create is still going to remain, where no history book that has their name is left. And we talked about that a bit with chapter one, and Solomon repeats that here because it's relevant. Because with his wisdom, he might be able to build up something like a name for himself, With his wisdom, he might be able to do something that allows him to be remembered, but ultimately, he will eventually be forgotten. And there's also additional issues that he's going to capture on later. But with these initial considerations, that he's going to end up leaving his produce behind and that his name will eventually be forgotten, it leads him to to verse 17. And he says, So I hated life. Because the works which have been done under the sun are evil to me. For all is vapor and striving after wind. And I hated all my labor which I labored under the sun, because I will leave it all to the man who comes after me. And you can kind of think of this as being something like a midlife crisis for Solomon. (laughs) Which, I mean, in his case, this is coming towards the end of his life but you can still kind of think of it along those lines where someone is working and laboring and then they are confronted with the reality of their death and it can rattle them. But 
when he's looking at the works which he's done under the sun and how he hated his labor and his labor was painful and vexatious and evil to him. I want to talk to you guys a bit about Genesis. And that might seem like a bit of a interesting transition for you, but there's something in Genesis that I think is going to be helpful because in Genesis, one of the things that we see is work where work is something that finds its start in Genesis. And I mean, in a sense that makes sense, but specifically work finds its start in Genesis chapter two. And for those of you who know, know your, uh, your outlines, Genesis chapter two is before the fall of creation. And I want to take a look at something that's in Genesis chapter two, because in Genesis chapter two, verse five, which for those, uh, which I should probably say, Genesis chapter two is the account of the creation of man, where in Genesis chapter one, you have the creation of the entire universe, the six days of creation. God said, let there be light. And it was so, and he called the light day and the darkness night, all of that good stuff. And in Genesis chapter one, you have this high altitude look at God's creation of the entire universe. But then in Genesis chapter two, it goes back to day six, which is the day on which mankind was created. And it gives you a more detailed look into the creation of man. And so in chapter two, verse five, it says, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet grown for Yahweh. God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. Notice the phrase cultivate the ground to work the ground. And so one of the things that the world is lacking is someone to actually work it. And that's part of the reason that mankind was created. And in verse 15, then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That God takes the man and he puts him into the garden to work. That before the fall happens, work already exists. And I also want to bring your attention to verse 18 through 20, because there's another aspect of work that I do want to bring your attention to. And in verse 18, it says, then Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so there is this larger narrative where God is showing Adam his need for a helpmate, his need for a companion. And so he's allowing Adam to feel his need for a woman before God provides that. But there's a specific aspect of this passage that I want to bring your attention to. And I'm going to ask you this question. Up until this point in the story of Genesis, who has been naming things? God. God is the one who named the light day. God is the one who named the sky heaven. God is the one who has been taking specific aspects of creation and giving them names. And I want to bring your attention first to God's creative and productive capacities. God is a worker. God created the world. 
in Exodus, when God is talking about the law of the Sabbath and he's giving them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, he says, because on six days I worked and rested on the seventh. Jesus in the New Testament talks about the fact that my father is working until now and so I myself am working. God is a worker and God is a namer. When you name something, it expresses dominion over that thing. It expresses authority over that thing. When you are the one who is allowed to decide what it's called. And so God has been taking part in this work of creating the earth. And he has been taking part of this work of naming the things that are in the earth. And when God is looking at his creation and he's looking at its need for someone to work it, he creates man. And he creates man so that man can do productive work. And God even brings us into his own work of naming things. That in a real sense, I like to imagine God as a father who is performing a task and then calls his little son over and then has his son start performing that task with him, teaching him to do the things that he does where God is creating man to be a co-worker with him in the care and subjugation of his world. And so in Genesis chapter 2, we see that work exists and work is a part of our ability to demonstrate God's image in us, that God is a productive worker and that we as people bearing his image are supposed to be productive, creative workers. And that work is a good thing that exists in a perfect pre-fall world. And yet, as I'm describing that to you, that should be feeling very odd compared to the tenor of the book of Ecclesiastes, compared to the statement that Solomon made. So I hated life because of the works which have been done under the sun, which are evil to me. For all is vapor and striving after wind. And I hated all my labor, which I labored under the sun. That Solomon is looking at work and he is looking at toil and he is looking at labor. And what we do not see is this celebration of the cooperation that Solomon has with God. We do not see this sweet, lovely, enjoyable labor that would be indicative and aspectual of a perfect world, but instead when Solomon is referring to his labor, he looks at it and he sees pain. And so if we started in Genesis chapter two, where work was ideal and work was good and work was part of a perfect world where we were in community with God, collaborating with him and his purposes of the world, how did we get where we are? And the answer is in Genesis chapter three, Adam sinned. Adam ate the fruit that God had commanded him not to eat. And in Genesis chapter 3, I want to bring your attention, excuse me, I want to bring your attention to verses 17 to 19. Because in verses 17 to 19, God curses Adam as a consequence of his sin. And he says to him in verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it 
all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Where at one time this this joyful, productive, cooperative work that the man was able to engage in it's now been changed by the effects of sin. And one of the helpful categories that you're going to have as you read the book of Ecclesiastes is you're going to find that it makes reference to ideas that exist in the book of Genesis. And especially early on, as I would study the book of Ecclesiastes, I would think of the book of Ecclesiastes as essentially an exposition of Genesis 17 to 19. Where God says to Adam, you are going to labor, you are going to struggle. You are going to be compelled to produce. You are going to be compelled to toil because your life will depend on it. It's going to be by the sweat of your face that you eat bread. It is going to be by the labor of your hands in hostile, thorn-ridden, thistle-ridden environments that you are going to be able to glean the things that are required for you to live. Where once your labor was a joyful thing, your labor will now become a painful thing and it will amount to nothing because you are going to return to dust. And it's this bleak, terrible, doomed image. And this now, this is the world we live in. We no longer live in the paradise of Genesis chapter 2, but rather we live in the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And even in Solomon's case, as Solomon is trying to create a Garden of Eden, as Solomon is trying to create a return to Genesis chapter 2, he finds himself in a situation where he is unable to escape from the realities of Genesis chapter 3. That, in a sense... You can think of Genesis chapter 3, 17 to 19 as the description of the Ecclesiastes world. And so there is a pain to labor that exists that is not a part of God's original intention for man's experience. And yet, because of our sin, it is the world in which we live. That Solomon is struggling with this reality. Where we are in a situation where we work and we work and we work, and it dominates our life. And even with that, we aren't able to produce something long-standing. It's like the person that, I, I read something on, on the internet one time, and it was a person saying, <laughs> I wake up to go to a job I don't like, to do things I don't like to do, to go to a bed in a house that I can't afford in order to get up and do it again the next day where it's just this grind. We'd call it the grind, the daily grind back to the Monday grind where work often is a painful vexatious thing. And then ultimately we're just laboring so that we can have a little time on the evening that we often don't even have the energy to enjoy to have weekends where even over the weekend we're stressing out about work and we're stressing out about the different things in our life we have to attend to just to go back to work and watch our life pass by 
as we labor in vapor. And that's a very dark picture and that's a very painful picture and that's an uncomfortable picture. And that's what Solomon is talking about. This is the cursed reality that many of us have to contend with. And what does it produce? And so Solomon, he turns his attention towards the legacy that he may or may not be able to produce. And he says in verse 19, and who knows, and this is speaking of the person to whom he's going to leave everything he creates. He says, and who knows if he will be wise or a fool, but he will have power over all my labor, which I labored and with which I was wise under the sun. Even this is vapor. And this is just that idea of even if you build up something good, you can't guarantee that it lasts. How many families are there where a certain person is able to build up a fortune and over the course of one generation or a few generations, it's gone? Because his sons are not able to labor with the wisdom and the discipline that he had. And that's exactly what Solomon is considering. He's looking at the fact that he has built up the golden age of Israel. He has built up gardens and palaces and houses. He has written Proverbs. He has written Psalms. He has written many books. And what will all of his produce and productive work come to when it is given into the hand of someone else? When it is given to his son? If someone builds up a company, what's going to happen in the next few hundred years over the course of successors who have the title CEO? Is it going to be someone who's able to cause that business to flourish even further? Or is this going to be a person who, through their foolish policies, drives this company into the dirt? What will your children do with the inheritance that you leave them? And the answer is, you don't know. It might be a person who's able to labor well and do well with it, and it might be someone who destroys it. Some some examples that come to mind for me, I'll give you two. I think about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquers this absolutely massive empire, and then he dies at a young age, and immediately everything that he built up, it falls into disarray. And four generals that served under him start fighting for rule over the various portions of his empire. His empire is immediately fractured and it's never able to go back to the glory that he had initially given it. Additionally, I think about King Solomon. One of the interesting things about this is that exactly the thing that King Solomon was afraid of happens. Solomon is afraid that the person who comes after him is going to be a fool and is going to end up scattering the things that Solomon had gathered. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what happens. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, I would actually like to read this passage to you just just so you can hear the story. Solomon has built up Israel to its golden age. Some of the descriptions of the Israelite kingdom is that people in those days valued silver as worthless, that a piece of silver on the ground was like a rock. You wouldn't even pick it up. Like if you saw a penny on the ground, maybe you'd pick it up. If you saw a quarter, maybe you'd pick it up. But if you saw a rock, it's like, why do I even care? It's worthless. 
And that's how an Israelite thought about silver, that Solomon had made the nation of Israel so rich that silver was worthless, not to the elites, not to the royalty, to the common man. And then we come to chapter 12. And then Rehoboam went to Shechem, and Rehoboam is Solomon's son, the person who's now the king over Israel. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And it happened where Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it. He was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is someone that God has prophesied is going to take a large portion of Israel away from Solomon because of Solomon's wickedness. And so towards the end of Solomon's life, Solomon hunted him down, which is actually rather sad. It's very similar to Saul hunting down King David. And Solomon started repeating episodes from Saul's life at the end of his life. You know, Solomon fell hard. But in verse 3, And then they sent and called for him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke harsh. And when it says yoke, that's like your burden. But you now lighten the harsh service of your father and this heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go for three days and then return to me. So the people went away. And essentially the thing that they're asking for is a massive reduction in taxes. Okay. So Rehoboam decides he's going to speak with his counselors. And in verse six, and then King Rehoboam took counsel with the elders who had stood before his father Solomon while he was still alive saying, how do you counsel me with, uh, to respond to this people? And, you know, let's just make a brief note there. Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived. Solomon, uniquely gifted by God to rule with extraordinary wisdom. Solomon, this guy who arguably does not need a counsel. These are the guys who gave Solomon advice. Like, let's just talk about how, how weighty this should be to Rehoboam. Okay, well, let's see what they told him. And in verse 7, And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them and grant their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. In other words, dude, lower the taxes. Take care of them. You will, you will win their loyalty. You will win their hearts. Just give them this thing that they ask for and your rule will be secure. Verse eight, but he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had counseled him and took counsel with the young men who grew up with him and stood before him. So he said to them, what counsel do you give us that we may respond to this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke, which your father put on us. And then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. Thus you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Which, that's like saying my pinky is thicker than my uh, dad's thigh. You might say, I've got more strength in my thumb than you have in your entire body. He's saying, I've got more man in my little finger than my dad had and everything he had. Arrogance. 
So now my father loaded you with heavy with a heavy yoke, and I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. You thought Papa Solomon was bad, but get ready for Rehoboam. So in other words, exactly the opposite of the thing that his father's counselor had told him. And so he tells that to the people of Israel. And what happens is all of the northern tribes of Israel hear that and they say in verse 16, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents and they leave. And then after this, Rehoboam has only just started to rule over the nation that his father had been reigning over, and by a single act of extraordinary foolishness, the kingdom is divided. Where a few tribes remain in the south in the nation of Judah, but the majority of the tribes of Israel go to the nation of Israel. And you have the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. And that's the remainder of First and Second Kings, the divided kingdom. Solomon had built up a golden age of his nation. And it didn't even take a generation for it all to be radically harmed. And in Solomon's case, God had made a special covenant with David that he wasn't going to let his kingdom fall forever. And so God, out of his kindness to David, he allowed the Davidic king to keep at least the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. But this is a massive blow. And there are other people who might be able to set up a nation and then in a generation it falls. I think about Cuba. There was once a time when Cuba was radically prosperous. And then a Soviet revolution, or sorry, not a Soviet revolution, a socialist revolution kicks off. Cuba is taken over by socialists. And now, just within a generation, the former splendor of that country, gone. And we've seen the same episode happen in plenty of countries like it. And those are just a few examples. How many companies in their heyday, some idiot gets at the reins and it all collapses under its own weight. And there's, the problem is there's not a way to defend against that. And so no matter what you're able to build up in this life, no matter what legacy you're able to build up, no matter what company you're able to put together, no matter what country even you're able to change, the next generation can come and destroy it. And you can't stop them because you're not around to stop them. And what's worse, they're not doing that with their stuff they're doing that with your stuff, the stuff that you worked so hard to build up and put together, the stuff that you poured your blood, sweat, and tears into, that's what they're dismantling. And so Solomon is looking ahead at all of this, and he's saying, holy cow. In verse 20, and I turned my heart to despair of all the labor which I had labored under the sun. And this is Ecclesiastes 2.20. He's like, man, what am I supposed to do? Because in verse 21, surely there is a man who does his labor with wisdom, knowledge, and success, but he will give his estate to a man who did not labor with him. 
even this is vapor and striving after wind. And this, this is a second thing that I want to draw your attention to. Let's just say for a, for, for a moment, what if the person who comes after you doesn't destroy your legacy? Like, let, let's consider the, the possibility that you build up something incredible and then what you build up does last. Now, the person who comes after you is wise. That The person who comes after you is able to maintain it. Well, here's the problem. You still built it. And so you are not the one who gets to glean the benefit of the things that you built up. Even if the person who comes after you is able to maintain your legacy, you're dead. How many people in heaven are still thinking about that company they built up and really, really enjoying a lot from it. In, in a similar consideration, how about people in hell? And that's a specific consideration that Paul's, that sorry Solomon is not making. We're not talking about the afterlife. But a person who's dead isn't going to enjoy the things that still exist in this life. Walt Disney isn't able to enjoy Walt Disney Company. The founding fathers are not enjoying the United States of America right now. Even all with all the work that those people did to build up their legacies and to build up things that we now are able to enjoy, they're dead. Why does it matter if you build up a legacy that's able to last after you when you don't get to enjoy it? It actually doesn't matter if you build up a legacy. It doesn't matter if your name's remembered because even if those things happen, it doesn't benefit you. All of the things that you labored and that you wisely labored to build, someone else enjoys them. And that doesn't help you. And so in verse 22, because what falls to a man with all of his labor and with the striving of his heart, which he labors under the sun. And this is back to the fact that labor and work is this painful reality. And Solomon is looking at this and he's looking at all of the pain and the effort and the toil. And he's like, what did I even get out of it? Verse 23, for all his days are painful and his task is vexatious. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Even this is vapor. You work. And even when you're not working, you're stressing out about work. And ultimately, what good does it give you? And, and now, Solomon is kind of rounding out this section. And what he has to say in verse 24 and 25 is this. There is nothing good in man that he should eat and drink and make his soul experience good in his labor. Even this I have seen is from the hand of God because who can eat and who can rejoice outside of it? Which there, there's a couple things that I need to talk about in that, in that passage and verse. First, I want to note that there's a group of passages in the book of Ecclesiastes that are often re referred to as the carpe diem passages you know, seize the day and you enjoy yourself, kind of a hedonistic cry. There's a, there's a series of passages in the book of Ecclesiastes that essentially give you this carpe diem um, message. And I'm going to read you a few of them just so that you can hear them. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. 
He says, I know that there is nothing better for any of them than to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man eat and drink and see good in all his labor which God has given him. And so in that, Solomon is saying, there ain't nothing better than just enjoying yourself. Enjoy your work, eat and drink and be merry. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 18, he says, listen, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and to experience good in all of one's labor, which he labors under the sun for the days of his life, which God has given to him, because this is his portion. What do you receive in, re in return for the labor of your life? You receive good, the good experiences that you're able to enjoy, trying to enjoy your job as best you can, trying to enjoy eating and drinking and to experience good. And Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 15, he says, And I myself praised joy, because there is nothing good for the man under the sun except to eat and drink and rejoice and to give himself to the labor which he does in the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. There's nothing good except just enjoying yourself. And he makes this statement that, the best that life has to offer, in fact, the only good that life has to offer, is the enjoyment that you're able to experience in it. And it's important to remember, again, Solomon is not dealing with the afterlife. Solomon is considering this life on its own merits, under the scope of its own boundaries. He's considering life under the sun. But some of you who are listening closely might notice an important difference between Ecclesiastes 3, 5, eight and the passage that I read to you at the beginning. I'm going to read two of them again and let, let's see if you can notice the difference. So Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse 24, there is nothing good in man that he should eat and drink and make his soul experience good in his labor. Compare that to, I know that there is nothing better for any of them than to rejoice and to do good in his life and also that every man eat and drink and see good in all his labor which God has given him. Did you notice the difference? In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and in the rest of these Carpe Diem passages, Solomon is saying there's nothing better than enjoyment. There's nothing better than eating and drinking and being merry. But in, in chapter 2 verse 24, that's not what it says. It says there is nothing good in man that he should eat and drink and make his soul experience good. Solomon says there's nothing good in man which would, as a consequence, result in his enjoyment of his life. Which one of the important things, in a lot of translations, chapter 2 verse 24 it's going to be exactly like the other Carpe Diem passages where it's a comparison statement. But I'm going to give you a bit of an insight into biblical translation, which, first of all, over the course of time that I've been able to translate the Old Testament, I have been routinely encouraged by the very, very good quality of the translations that we have access to. Our translations of the Old Testament are very, very good. But there are a few things that I've noticed as just kind of quirks of ways that people translate. And in a lot of situations, they don't make a huge difference, but this is a situation where it kind of does. 
And the quirk that exists in translations of the Old Testament is this. Sometimes people will notice that two passages are really, really similar, and then they'll translate them the same. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 24 through 25, the translators have noticed this phrase is really, really similar to the other Carpe Diem passages in Ecclesiastes, where all of those are comparison statements, and so this one must also be a comparison statement. Because the the normal translation that you're going to see is, there is nothing better for man than that he should eat and drink and make his soul experience good. And the difference between that and there is nothing good in man that he should ex- eat and drink and make his soul experience good the difference between those two translations is one word in the Hebrew. And so in English, it's kind of several words, and you can tell that it's a rather different idea. But in the Hebrew, it's a, dis- it's a difference of exactly one word. And so these are very similar to each other. But when I see that a biblical author makes a statement, and his statement is similar to other statements, but different, I think to myself, okay, that difference is important because he knows how to say better than, and he didn't. And so that's just one quirk of translation that comes up sometimes. And in most circumstances, it it doesn't even really change the translation. But this is one where it changes the, the meaning. Because in verse 24, the statement that Solomon is making is in a sense, you don't deserve the good that life has to offer. There's nothing that you've done. There's nothing good in you that that entitles you to the goodness that you're able to experience in life. And yet, it's there. And, And that's a different statement than there's nothing better for you to do than enjoy life. But also, you should kind of notice that at the end of this, at the end of this situation where Solomon is noticing, I can't leave a legacy and I can't make sure my name is remembered. And even if I could, I'm not there to enjoy those things. Someone else who didn't make that labor, who didn't make the sacrifices that I made, they get to enjoy it, not me. And so Solomon looks at that and he he says, there's nothing good in me that I should be able to experience this blessing. And even this is from the hand of God, because who can eat and who can rejoice outside of it? The, the, the joys that we experience, they have to be from God because where else could they be? And so this is a very interesting statement. And it says something a bit about the posture of, of Solomon over the course of Ecclesiastes. But we should also still notice that in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and in the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon talks about the fact that he himself had at it that he himself pursued all of the pleasures this life had to offer, and he's still writing us a book of his regrets. Solomon did not come to the end of his life of thoroughly enjoying all of the pleasures that existed in it and then come away with that with, that's the way you should do it. We already know that that isn't the answer, and yet, despite the fact that the pleasures that exist in life are not enough to ultimately satisfy and ultimately do not contain the answer of what is the best use of this life, Solomon still does note that's still the best this life has to offer. 
And by the way, the New Testament agrees with him. Just another short reminder, Solomon is talking about life under the sun. Life that is not considering that life that is not uh, in consideration of the afterlife. And so when Solomon is considering life on its own merits, he comes away with pleasure is the best it has to offer. And in fact, that is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the things that Paul is addressing is the belief that people are not actually raised from the dead. And he says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so when this life is considered on its own merits, and when this life is considered in isolation from the rest of uh, ultimately eternity, then yeah, pleasure's the best it's got. And that's, that's the thing we should chase. And so this is an accurate conclusion. And yet also notice that Solomon specifically notes this pleasure as a gift from God. And I also want to point out in 1 Corinthians again, in chapter 10, which in chapter 10, Paul is discussing eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so there's a larger context that we aren't going to address. But when, when Paul is talking about eating meat, he says, if I partake with gratefulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Where Paul is looking at life and he says, I eat food that I enjoy and it drives me to give thanks. It drives me to gratitude to the God who gave that to me. That in the New Testament, we are supposed to enjoy the blessings that God has given us and that's supposed to drive us to worship him. And so it should be understood, the Christian life is not the life of an aesthetic. The Christian life is not a life of self-deprivation. And it doesn't mean that we don't sacrifice. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that we sacrifice for, but refusing to experience pleasure is not an inherent good. It is not inherently righteous to refuse to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. And so there is a larger context that we will eventually get to in the book of Ecclesiastes. But even in this early section, you notice that Solomon is expressing, is expressing a gratitude to God who is the source of the good things that we are able to experience in life. Pleasure is not the ultimate thing that this life has to offer, but pleasure is a good, kind thing that God allows us to have, and we are supposed to enjoy it. And over the course of the next several chapters of the book, the thing that Solomon is going to be discussing is let's look at different aspects of life. Let's look at various categories of life, circumstances of life. Let's consider different realities that we have to contend with in life. How do you navigate life in order to maximize your enjoyment of the pleasures that God has installed in it? That one of the really nice things about Ecclesiastes is Ecclesiastes is largely a book about how to enjoy life. And so at the beginning of Ecclesiastes in chapter one and two, Solomon makes sure you understand, hey, this is not all there is. Don't think that pleasure is the end of it. Don't think that pleasure and legacy and work and wisdom is, is the best that life has to offer. But also, let me tell you what I've learned. Let me explain to you the things that genuinely improve your quality of life. 
Because as Christians, we live in God's world, and God is a good father, and God gives good gifts. And one of the most important ways that you worship God is by enjoying the good gifts he gives you and saying, thank you. That when Paul talks about doing everything to the glory of God, it's in the context of enjoying his gifts and thanking him for them. And so I'm really looking forward to the remainder of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of good stuff in Ecclesiastes that I'm looking forward to get to getting to. But this is kind of the point where we start edging into the much more happy portion of Ecclesiastes, where even though Solomon continues to deal with heavy realities, because if you're going to navigate the sea, you need to know how to navigate storms. If you're going to navigate a road, you need to know how to navigate potholes. And so it's not that the remainder of the book of Ecclesiastes has no dark things in it, but the the main point of the remainder of this section for the next several chapters is going to be how do you enjoy your life in light of the realities of this world? How do you enjoy this life in light of the ways that God has set it up to function? And so I'm excited because we're going to learn how to make our life more fun, how to make our life more enjoyable. And that's not a sinful thing. That's a good thing because part of the wisdom of God is the fact that he loves his children. And so let's just finish up with verse 26. And I'm going to, I'm going to connect it to verse 25 because who can eat and who can rejoice outside of it? That is to say the hand of God for to the man who is pleasing before him, he has given wisdom and knowledge and rejoicing. But to the sinner, he has given a task to gather and collect in order to give to the one who is pleasing before God. But remember, even this is vapor and striving after wind. That God has set up the world and that one of the things that exists in his world is that good gifts are given to his children and the wicked man even when the wicked man gathers, ultimately that wicked man is going to die and that that's the stuff that he gathers is going to end up in the hands of other people. And one thing that I should make a note of, the words of pleasing before God, that's the word for good before God. And then the word sinner is the word for sinner. But in this context, it should be noted that doesn't necessarily mean like righteous and unrighteous. It's just to say that God gives what he wants to give to whom he wants to give it to. And so, for example, you see a similar idea when God talks about uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It's not that Jacob and Esau had done something to earn or to lose God's favor in the womb because it's referring to when they were born. But rather, Jacob was pleasing to God for some reason and Esau was not pleasing to God for some reason. Not in the sense that there was a uh, a defect in Esau or that there was a um, a beautiful feature of Jacob, but that God sets his favor upon people for his own purposes, which is an idea that's expanded on in, in Romans chapter uh, 9, for example. But that's exactly what Solomon is saying here, that God gives wisdom and knowledge and rejoicing to the person he decides to give it to. And then to the person that God has decided not to place his compassion onto, that person gathers just to give to someone else. That in a sense, God is in control of this entire process. And not even in a sense, just reality. God's in control of the resources that exist in life. 
and he gives to whom he pleases and he takes away from whom he pleases because ultimately it's all God's. But Solomon reminds you that even this is vapor and striving after wind. An enterprise is ultimately still vapor. Pleasure is still vapor. And so we're going to go and we're going to move into a new section now and we're going to talk about the best way to enjoy the good gifts that God has put into life. But you need to remember, you need to keep into the back of your mind, this is vapor. This is striving after wind. This is short-lived. And so even though Solomon is going to walk you through these things, you can't come out of this thinking that the purpose of life is to build up toys, that the purpose of life is to enjoy yourself. That's not ultimately it. And so even as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, even as we're going through these next sections, you should have this anticipation of a greater answer that's coming, of a greater answer that Solomon's ultimately going to give you. And that hunger shouldn't leave you And that expectation shouldn't leave you as we talk about this practical wisdom of enjoyment to the remainder of the chapters. And so, with that, let's get ready to go into the next section. Uh, Well, thank you for listening. Let me pray out. Let me pray for you out. (sighs) Lord, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. And thank you for Solomon. Thank you for allowing Solomon to live the life that he lived. Thank you for giving Solomon the wisdom that he had. I pray that you would help us to benefit from the wisdom that is in this book. I pray that you would help us to glean benefit from the the pleasurable things that you've placed in this life, that we would enjoy the blessings that you give us because you are a good father. But Lord, that pleasure is not all there is. You are wise and you do know how this world works. And so as a result, your word does contain very fruitful and helpful input into how we live and maximize our enjoyment of your world. But Lord, that is not the extent, that is not the fullness of what you would have for us. And ultimately, even if we grab every drop of pleasure that you have placed into this world, we will end up just like Solomon saying, I have wasted my life. And so please help us not to lose sight of the things that should ultimately have our attention. And yet, even so, I pray that we would learn what you have to say in terms of the wisdom that surrounds the enjoyment of life. I pray that we would benefit from it. And Lord, I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shaking Scripture's Leaves. If you would like to reach out to me or read blog posts on other issues, you can visit my website at shakingscripturesleaves.com. I'll see you next time.